Faith is believing God is who he says he is and that he will do all that he says he will do. And the way you know that someone has great faith in God is not that they can get God to do something by the power of their faith. Instead, because they believe that God is who he says he is, you see their faith in him by their great surrender to him. My name's Ed, and I'm glad you're with us for Community Christian Online today. We've been discussing this idea of faith and great faith. And if today you have questions or you want to tell me something, there's a number on the screen that you could text. I'll receive it and I'll respond. So on this idea of great faith leading to great surrender to God, here's where it gets complicated with our surrender to God. Sometimes there's something that God asks you to do when you read it in the Bible or you hear it or you sort of feel it in your spirit. And no matter how your great your faith is in God, your thought is, I don't want to do that. And one of the difficult things about being a person who's seeking God or trying to follow God is that when you hear God's word as you read the Bible, oftentimes God encourages us to do stuff, but he doesn't tell us why. I mean, there just aren't a whole lot of, and here's why I want you to do that kind of explanation from God. Now, maybe you just stumbled on this today or a friend of yours asked you to watch this with them and you're not really a person with faith and you think, and that's one of the reasons why. I want to know why I'm doing things. I don't want to just go off because some old book or some teacher explains that God says to do this. Why? I mean, you want me to forgive? Why? I'm just done with them. And yeah, it hurts sometimes when I think about them. And yeah, I don't trust like I used to, but after what they did to me, I mean, forgiving is just letting them off the hook. Hey, I get that. I mean, we all feel that. and. There are just some things that as we evaluate our circumstances and our lives, and then we see what God's word has to say uh, that we ought to do, it just doesn't line up with our circumstances and it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And once again, most of the time, God just doesn't tell us why. Maybe you sense God wanting you to, to follow him. I mean, like follow him, like identify that you're a Christian and you're thinking, hey, I'm okay with showing up and face a private thing and I even like how it centers me but if my friends or my parents found out I mean I know some I mean have you seen what Christians do in the world but you know there's something drawing you in and it really makes no sense but you sort of feel this gentle kind of pull of saying hey just trust me obey me but you aren't sure you have that much faith so let me let you in on this little known fact this is a central part of growing in faith what I just described. So in this series of faith, we're going to take it from defining what faith is to seeing some people who are written up in the Bible who are right where we are. Now, this is really easy to miss, but it's really helpful if I can help you get it. God's ultimate agenda for you is not just getting you to obey him. And what I mean by that is it's not like God has some laid out plan. He just wants to keep you on his track. Like you did that again. I mean, that's not right. You have to go the other way or you're never gonna get where I want you to be. Often I think when people hear people like me teach that about God's agenda, they think God's agenda is to get them to do five things and stop doing five things and just go down this path. But God's goal is not just to get you to act right. If God's goal is to get us to act right, (laughs) lightning's pretty good. (laughs) I mean, what I mean is there are a lot more efficient ways of getting us just to be obedient. But God's ultimate agenda, it's getting you to trust him. It's it's not simply your cooperation. 
God's after something else. And this is why he doesn't always tell us the why behind what he's asking us to do. And you know, I can see if you're not a follower of Christ, all of this may sound way too strange to believe, but I'm asking you, hey, don't turn me off yet. Because followers of Jesus, we've seen the faithfulness of God enough times to know that even if we don't know what he's doing, we know that he, we know who he is, and we know that he is worth trusting. In fact, for generations, those of us who know God in this kind of way, people of all generations have been so moved by his faithfulness to them that they write songs to sing to him. And because music and lyrics often say what we feel in our heart, but we always don't know how to say it, we use these songs as a form of worship. And for this series, we've been singing this song because it sums up so well what faith looks like. Your ways are higher than 
So I want us to see how God often asks someone to do something without really making it clear why he wants them to do it in order to build their faith. And to do that, I want to show you an account in the Bible. And I don't know what you think about the Bible, whether you think it's true or it just teaches truth or something else. But here's what we know about this. This is an account that mattered to people for generations enough that they've been passing it down to us for thousands of years, often given their life to protect it. And that in itself is noteworthy. And let's face it, you've read things before you didn't know if they were true or not, and they did teach you something about your life and it helped you. So wherever you are on this thing with the Bible, I wanna share you, with you this ancient account from the Bible. It's in a part of the Bible called 2 Kings. And it has a great way to illustrate for us that God's ultimate agenda in asking us to obey him, again, is not just cooperation. He's up to something else. Here's what it says. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now the nation of Aram was northeast of Israel and he was the commander of the army. Basically, he's the second most powerful man in the whole country. He's had this great career and now he has this fatal disease, leprosy. And I won't read this part, it does take too long, but it's in the Bible. It tells about in one of Aram's military victories, he'd taken captive of some people and one was a young Israelite girl. He'd taken her back to be a slave to Aram and she became Naaman's personal servant. And over time, she begins to consider Naaman and his wife friends. Maybe she even looks at them like parents. When Naaman gets leprosy, she cares enough about him that she says to his wife, I remember back in my homeland that there was a man of God that she believes if Naaman could get to him, well, he could be healed. Well, even though that's not the best plan, hey, let's go to my, our enemy and ask them to heal the guy who defeated our country. It's not a very good plan, but it's all Naaman has and he's desperate. So here's what happened. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aaron replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. 
So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, which is about 12,000 ounces, 6,000 shekels of gold, which is about 2,400 ounces, and 10 sets of clothing. And I know when you read that, the clothing looks out of place, but clothing was really valuable in their day because all the fabric had to be hand spun. So they have this big box of silver, a big box of clothes, and a rack of clothes they're taking with them. He also has this letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel saying, this is my servant, Naaman, sending him to you so you can heal him of leprosy. See, here's how they thought about it in those days. There's God, there was king, there was people, and there's dirt. It's God, king, people, dirt. You have a God, I have a God, we all got gods. Your God's got over your dirt, and my God's got over my dirt, over my land. And when we have a war, what we're finding out is who's got the strongest God. They thought God worked through the king. In fact, many of the kings considered themselves to be God and would call themselves the sons of God. God would work through the king to the people. So when the king of Aram hears that there's a powerful man in Israel that could heal Naaman, he assumes what you'd probably assume, the most powerful country, man in my country, <laughs> that's me. The most powerful man in their country must be the king. So he sends Naaman to the king. When the king reads the letter, he knows, oh my, I'm in trouble. I mean, as soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he tears his robe and he says, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. See, the king of Israel thinks this is all a big trick and they're trying to draw him into another war. Well, Elisha is the prophet in Israel. He's the one the girl was talking about. He's the man of God. And when he hears that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sends a message to the king. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. And now this next part's real important. Have the man come to me and he will know. In other words, when I'm finished with this guy, he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman with his horses, his chariots, the gold, the silver, and the rack of clothes, <laughs> they come to Elisha's house. Now, in that little part of town, Elisha's at, if you hear an army approaching, what do you think? Oh, it's the enemy. They're coming to our, house, our town, they're gonna destroy it. They're coming to kill something, destroy something. Whatever it is, it's probably not any good. So when they get in front of Elisha's house, I mean, the place is deserted. And Naaman's an important man. He's used to be treated with respect. He's used to people coming out and bowing down before him and humbling themselves. But an interesting thing happens when he gets there and it appears to be an insult to him. Elisha sends a messenger to him, a messenger to say, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And then the servant goes back in the house. I mean, that's just it. And Naaman's, I mean, he's like stupefied. He's like, what? I'm an important guy. I mean, I could crush this whole, I could certainly destroy this town and a messenger comes to me? And Naaman immediately thinks what, we would think in that situation and what we often think when God asks us to do something, which is this, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. I mean, I have leprosy. I don't need a bath in a dirty river. I, I don't see a connection between my issue and what God's asking me to do. I don't see any connection. And because I can't see a connection, I, I think you're just mocking me. The Bible says, Naaman's furious. Naaman said, I thought, see, there it is, he had an expectation. I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, 
better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash them and be cleansed? So he turns and goes off in a rage. He says, see, I figured this out. Uh, the prophets would come out and he'd say, oh, we're so honored to have you here at Naaman. And he'd say all this religious mumbo jumbo and he'd pray real loud and he'd wave his hands over the spot I need healed. He'd say, be healed. Instead, Elisha, he didn't even have the courtesy to come out and see me. He sends a servant to tell me to go to a river and dip seven times and I'll be cleansed. That doesn't make any sense. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, I have. I mean, if you have a story like that and you'd be willing to share it, text me, let me know. But he doesn't get it. I don't see the connection between what I'm sensing I should do and what I need and what you just told me to do. You know, we had a sort of a heavy relationship, my mum and dad, and I never really got on with my father. And he was absent most of my life, actually, either drunk or having some affair, just awful. And then when I became a Christian, I wanted a relationship with my dad. I wanted him back in my life. I had to track him down, which I did, and he was living in a, a pensioner's flat in Macclesfield on his own. You know, I thought he'd have changed like I did. He hadn't. He was grumpier. He was older. He was drinking more. He was just vulgar, crude, you know, sarcastic. And he's exactly what I remembered. And I invited him down to our house, to our home in, in, in London. And he'd get the train down and I'd meet him at Euston Station. And every time I'd meet him on, on the platform, I'd go and get him when he was coming off. He'd be whinging and moaning and complaining and slightly drunk. And one of the things he used to whinge about all the time was money. And then one day he came to stay and he'd, um, he got quite poorly and had to go to the local hospital. Ended up staying for a week. It was a nightmare. Um, and I wanted to get him back home when he was better. So we took him to Euston Station and I put him on the train uh, and sat him down. And right in the middle of the carriage, I had this overwhelming feeling of love for my dad, and it was really weird. And I almost started to cry in the carriage, and I looked at him and I felt really sad for him, that we'd never had a relationship. I don't ever remember eating a meal with my father. All that stuff came up for me. And in my mind came this idea to upgrade his ticket to a first-class ticket to Manchester. And, and I bought a very expensive single uh, first-class ticket back to Manchester and I walked him into the first-class compartment and I sat him down and I kissed him on the head and as we stood on the platform Amanda said to me what on earth are you doing I said you know what I have no idea I just really wanted to see my dad happy and as I looked at him through through the window of, of the carriage I saw my father take his trilby off, he always wore a hat, take his trilby off and put it on the table. He hit the, the recline button and sort of leant back in the, the leather seat. And then he clicked his fingers and some of the waiters brought him a cup of tea and some biscuits. And then he got his newspaper out and started to read it. And as he was doing that, he just turned to look at me out of the window. And he had the biggest smile on his face that you could ever see. It's like every birthday and every Christmas had all come together. And he was beaming. And that was the last time that I ever saw my father. Three weeks later, he died of a, a massive heart attack on his own.
in that pensioner's flat. Now I always think, was that me just making up an idea that I thought I might buy him a ticket? Or was that God guiding me? I have a real peace with my father through all those years of, of arguments and fighting and drinking and womanizing and, and, and just awful stuff. The only image I've got of my father is that picture of his face looking through that railway carriage as it drove off. So was it God or was it me? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm already lonely and you want me to break up with this person? I mean, I know they're not right, but they're the only one. I don't get it. I'm already having financial trouble and I've been praying, God, help me financially, help me financially. And, and you want me to give? I, I don't see the connection. So we do what Naaman did. We say, forget it. <laughs> That's not what I expected. It's not what I came here for. Well, fortunately, Naaman has someone around him that I hope you have around you and that I hope I always have around me. Naaman has a friend who has the courage not to just listen to his anger, but to speak the truth into his anger. A friend who would bring into the unreasonableness an element of reason. Naaman's servant went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Hey Naaman, if this guy had come out and said, Hey, to be healed, you've got to follow the yellow brick road and bring back the broom of the wicked witch or something stupid like that. Would you not have done that? Oh yeah, I'd have done that. He could have asked you to give a bunch of money to feed the hungry and you'd have probably done that. But when he says, go wash in a river, what does that have to do with anything? The servant said, if you would have done this great thing, then why not do the simple thing? What do you really have to lose? See. God has asked some of us to do uh, really simple things. And really, you don't have much to lose, but by trying what he's asking you to do, and you aren't sure it's going to how, how it's going to work out, and it, it seems like a waste of time, but the truth is, the longer we stay in the circumstances that we're in, nothing's getting better. So finally, Naaman decides he's going to go with the crazy idea. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. His flesh was restored and he became clean like a little boy. Let me ask you, if you had COVID and you really couldn't breathe and you don't want to do the respirator thing and someone said, hey, just have your family take you down to the Chattahoochee and dip you seven times and when you come up, you'll be healed. Would you do that? Now, this next part is the deal. This is where you need to lean in. This is what God wants to bring you and me to again and again. It's God's agenda behind our obedience. God's not trying to control your behavior. I mean, that'd be simple. You, you and I, I mean, if I had unlimited power, I could figure out how to control the people in my world. God's after far more than that. And it often takes asking us to do something unusual, asking us to do things that really don't seem to have a connection with our issues or our needs or our hurts or our fears. It's the very thing in that that God uses to accomplish his agenda. Look at this. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man to God. He stood before him and said, I was healed of, of leprosy. Let's bottle the water, let's sell it. Here it is. Here's what he said. Now I know. Before I didn't know. Before I had heard others say, but I didn't know. Now I know that there is no God in all the, not land, not the nation, 
not the dirt I live on. There's no God in all the world. I didn't even come here to learn that. All I wanted to do was be healed of leprosy, not learn about God. But now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. You know what God's agenda is in obedience? It's not controlling your behavior. It's to get your faith to intersect with his faithfulness because in that moment, you experience God. When your faith and God's faithfulness intersect, you know God is Father. When your faith and His faithfulness intersect, something happens in you that it overshadows everything that's happening around you. And you don't go home rejoicing over the fact that your problem got solved or your fear got removed. You go home rejoicing over the fact, my goodness, there's a God in the universe and He knows me. The God of the universe, He touched my life. I mean, you won't believe after I ended that relationship. You won't believe what happened in my finances after I gave. You won't believe what happened to my family once I forgave. I, I, I didn't even know how to pray. And I met God. That's God's agenda. It's not to get you to conform, to control your behavior. That, that wouldn't even be that hard. God sent his son to die so that we can have a relationship. And good relationships are always built on trust. God will always call us to do this unusual thing to force us beyond our comfort zone in order to teach us to trust Him. Because He knows that in that moment when we finally say, okay, I'm gonna trust you. And then He comes through in that moment, something happens in our relationship. And that is what God is after. Naaman shows up to get rid of his leprosy and he meets God. He didn't even show up with a spiritual problem. It was his circumstances that brought him there. And then he did something unusual that God asked him to do, and he goes home knowing God. He showed up for God to change circumstances, and God changed him. And I have to say, he didn't know what hung in the balance. And folks, I just tell you, we don't know what hangs in the balances of our decisions of whether or not to trust and obey God in the area where we feel he's kind of nudging us to go. I mean, we think we know. I, I know what it's like, I'm lonely. I want that to end. I, I'll be poor. I'll be a doormat. You do not know what hangs in the balance because you don't know what God wants to do in you and through you. Listen to what happens in the end. This is so cool. Naaman says, please accept a gift now from your servant. Here, have some gold and silver and all these clothes. And Elisha says, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, he said, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. Now, why does he ask about the dirt? Well, I mean, what's gonna happen with the dirt? For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Remember what I told you? It's God, it's king, it's people, it's dirt. He's saying it. Elisha, buddy, I believe. I don't just believe here in this country on this dirt. If you'll give me some of this dirt, I'm gonna use this dirt to cover up the dirt where the gods of my country are from because obviously God is over your dirt and I will never ever worship any other God. <laughs> even though that's a little weird, he'd become a total God worshiper even though he didn't have it all figured out yet. He was abandoning his false gods, why? 
Because he came looking for God? No. Because he had a very little bit of faith, just enough faith to go dip even though it didn't make any sense to him. His little bit of faith intersected with the great faithfulness of God, and he was a changed man. Often as we look back, we can see that God can use our mistakes, and goodness, I've made so many of them. God didn't put me in prison, I did. God didn't make me get two divorces, I did. But he's helped me all the way, th all the way through it. You know, dysfunctional parents, alcoholics, thrown out when I was 15 through an argument with my father, uh, moved into a squat with a, with a gang, got in trouble with the police, ended up with a prison sentence, came out of there, joined the army at 21, uh, two marriages, two divorces, almost alcoholic, from being bullied at school to joining the army boxing team and being a bully in a uniform. My mother died. Um, I hadn't seen my mum since I was a kid. She got ill. She had cancer. My mum and dad were both heavy smokers and heavy drinkers. Uh, long story short, again, she got put into hospital. I had about 10 days with her and she died. She had a massive sort of um, tumour and, uh, and just fell asleep in, in my arm. And that was a catalyst for me, really, to, um, to start thinking about stuff. And that set me on the journey. And then shortly after that, a friend of mine said, you've got lots of questions, you should probably try an Alpha course. You know, 16 years in the army, I've jumped out of airplanes, I've done rifle courses, I've done military, I've done courses on everything. I'll do a course on God. And I remember just sitting there listening to these talks and I thought, do you know what? I'd never heard any of this stuff. It was all completely new to me and, uh, and I prayed. And my prayer was, if you're up there and all this stuff is true and you can make me a better man, you can make me a better character, you know, you could make me a, hopefully a faithful husband, a good father, someone who people would like, then you know what, let's go for it. And then things started to change. Really weird stuff was going through my head. You know, I thought, I've lived with my girlfriend eight years. Maybe we should get married. We talked about it and we got married. Prayed and got my son back in my life who left when he was three. He's now 36 and living with us. And now I've got a 18 year old daughter who's gorgeous. I mean, if you'd have told me, you know, a few years ago that I would be a vicar in the Church of England, I'd have said, you're completely crazy. It was the furthest thing from my, it wasn't even in my mind. I still have to pinch myself at, at times. So I'm working with people now who really I've been around most of my life. A lot of people I can relate to. I work with the homeless, those affected with mental health issues, those in prison, those coming out of prison through a charity called Caring for Ex-Offenders. And I was presented with a, an MBE for, for me, which I think is really exciting for working with ex-offenders. And to be honored like that is, is extraordinary. And it's what God says, I have a good and perfect plan for your life, plan to prosper you and not to harm you, plan to give you hope and a future. And he says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And, and that for me is what, what keeps me going. And that's what the Christian journey is like over and over and over. It's really not a one-time thing. I mean, it's not an annual thing. It's, it's agonizing every time. 
Even as I prepare for this message, I pray, Lord, the next time I pray, I'm, I'm just faithful because so many times in my life I've seen this happen and we agonize and we're afraid and we think, oh no. And then, wow, what if I'd said no? You don't know what hangs in the balance of your obedience. You think you know, but you don't know. And you'll never know until you come to the place where you say, God, I trust you and I'm gonna watch and see what you do. I've had so many of these kind of things in my life, but probably the biggest one was when I started this church almost 30 years ago. Some of you know that when I came, I was just about done with ministry. I'd started a church and messed it up, and then I'd been in an established church for seven years, but I was just done with the whole thing. I, I just had it, and I was planning on giving up and doing something else. I mean, anything else would have been better than what I'd been through. One day a friend of mine said to me, hey, you know, there's this little group of people and they've tried and failed to get a church going in Coweta County and they're agreed to sell the building they have and give up control and start over. And I think you ought to go and lead that. So really as a favor to him, I came down to talk to the people and they were nice and they did seem to want to do something, but really they had no money to do it. They told me they'd pay me $36,000 a year. And the year before they took in the whole year, $20,000. For Becky and I to move, we, I mean, we'd always lived in church-owned homes. We'd have to move and buy a house, and it wasn't like we had a house to sell. We, we weren't even making enough money at the other church to have a down payment saved. And we had two little kids under three years old. It didn't make any sense to me at all. But every time I prayed about it, I got the sense it was the right thing. And Becky did too, that we ought to do it. And it just didn't make any sense, but we felt we ought to do it. It didn't make any sense. But when I look back on that 30 years later and I see what God has done and how my life would have been different and what I would have missed out on and what my family would have missed out on, I had no idea what hung in the balance. Now think about it. What if God had whispered me, hey, Ed, if you move, you're gonna love it and your kids are gonna love it and lots of people are gonna have their lives changed. It'll change your life and it's gonna all be fine. Well, we'd have been packing in a moment. But just think with me for a second. And this is where we all get it messed up. If that's what he'd have done, then the focus of our attention would have been on, how do we finally get what he said was gonna happen? God says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I, I want you to know me. I want you to do this adventure with me. I want you to look back at the whole thing and say, all of that was a God thing. You see, the moment that God gives us something good on the other side, when we see the other side, he loses something that's really valuable to him. You know what he loses? He loses our attention. If God were to say, hey, if you break up with him, there he is over there, whoo, you miss God altogether. I mean, isn't that true? You see, God isn't interested in controlling our behavior. He wants us to learn to trust him. And to that end, God went so far, Far. I mean, he went as far as he could go. He, he came in human form as the man Jesus, and Jesus grew and he lived and he taught and he experienced what it was like to be us. And then he gave his life so that we could know that he could be trusted to do everything he said he would do. So followers of Jesus come together weekly to remember this gift of love that he gave to us, that he gave his life for us. So now we're gonna take communion. Whatever elements you have, you can use to remember him. This 
is the body of Jesus that was given for us. Let's take this and eat and remember his life given for us. This represents his blood shed on the cross so we could know that he loves us. Let's take and remember. Thank you, God. Now you would you receive our worship for your life given for us. I can't ever say when all 
When all hope was lost, you gave up your son so I could know your love has set me free. So would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your life given for us. A reminder that you will do everything you say you will do to make a relationship with us. So Father, when the times come that you ask us to do something and it just doesn't make any sense to us, would you help us to remember who you are and that you can be trusted to do everything you said you would do and that you will be with us through the whole thing and that through this thing that we are being asked to do that doesn't necessarily make sense, we'll come to know you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me talk to you for just a moment about next steps. If you've been joining in with us and you never let us know that, maybe that's your next step. Just text the number on the screen and, and let us know. Maybe you want prayer. You, you could text that. You could include that in the text or you could just raise your hand and say hello. <laughs> maybe you need help of some kind. What is it that God's been sort of nudging you to do? Is it to forgive somebody? Maybe you're here and people have been telling you your anger's out of control and you need help with that or maybe you need help with mon money and what is God nudging you to do? Just do it. I, I, I don't know how it's gonna turn out, but let me tell you what will happen. When your faith and God's faithfulness intersect, then you will know that you can trust Him and you will grow. Maybe some of you aren't sure what your next step is, but you just need to come back. For the others of you, it's really clear you should take the step to be baptized and acknowledge that you're putting your trust in God. We want to help you do that, so, so text us. Whatever God's asking you to do, you know what will happen if you do it is you'll see that He can be trusted. You'll see how smart our God is, how wise our God is. How well does He know you? He can be trusted. If you want to know what God's up to, all you have to do is to submit to what He's asking, apply it to your life, and then you will know why. And what he gets is that you learn to trust him. I hope you'll reach out to us. I hope you'll grow in your trust for God. And we'll see you next week.